Book Two, Sections Nine through Eleven of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two: The Serfs of King Cole, Section Nine. Having settled the matter of the committee, Hal told the assembly how Alec Stone had asked him to spy upon the men. He thought they should know about it. The bosses might try to use it against him, as Olson had warned. "'They may tell you I'm a traitor,' he said. "'You must trust me.' "'We trust you!' exclaimed Mike with fervor, and the others nodded their agreement. "'All right,' Hal answered. "'You can rest sure of this one thing. If I get on to that tipple, you're going to get your weights.' "'Hear, hear!' cried Big Jack, in English fashion, and a murmur ran about the room. They did not dare make much noise, but they made clear that that was what they wanted. Hal sat down and began to unroll the bandage from his wrist. "'I guess I'm through with this,' he said, and explained how he had come to wear it. "'What?' cried old Mike. "'You fool me like that?' And he caught the wrist, and when he had made sure there was no sign of swelling upon it, he shook it so that he almost sprained it really, laughing until the tears ran down his cheeks. "'You old son of a gun!' he exclaimed. Meantime, Kowalski was telling the story to Zamirowski, and Jerry Minetti was explaining it to Resmok, in the sort of pigeon English which does duty in the camps. Hal had never seen such real laughter since coming to North Valley. But conspirators cannot lend themselves long to merriment. They came back to business again. It was agreed that the hour for the committee's visit to the superintendent should be quitting time on the morrow, and then John Edstrom spoke, suggesting that they should agree upon their course of action in case they were offered violence. "'You think there's much chance of that?' said someone. "'Sure there be,' cried Mike Sicoria. "'One time in Cedar Mountain we go see boss, say air course blocked. What you think he do them fellers?' He hit them one lick in nose, he kicked them three times in behind, he run them out. Well, said Hal, if there's going to be anything like that, we must be ready. What you do? demanded Jerry. It was time for Hal's leadership. If he hits me one lick in the nose, he declared, I'll hit him one lick in the nose, that's all. There was a bit of applause at this. That was the way to talk. Hal tasted the joys of his leadership, but then his fine self-confidence met with a sudden check, a lick in the nose of his pride, so to speak. There came a woman's voice from the corner, low and grim. Yes, and get yourself killed for all your trouble. He looked towards Mary Burke and saw her vivid face flushed and frowning. What do you mean? he asked. Would you have us turn and run away? "'I would that,' said she. "'Rather than have ye killed, I would. "'What'll ye do if he pulls his gun on ye?' "'Would he pull his gun on a committee?' Old Mike broke in again. "'One time in Barela, ain't I told you how I lose my cars? "'I tell Wayboss somebody steal my cars, and he pull gun on me, "'and he say, get the hell off that tipple, you old billy goat. "'I shoot you full of holes.' Among his classmates at college, Hal had been wont to argue that the proper way to handle a burglar was to call out to him, saying, "'Go ahead, old chap, and help yourself. There's nothing here I'm willing to get shot for.' 
What was the value of anything a burglar could steal, in comparison with a man's own life? And surely, one would have thought, this was a good time to apply the plausible theory. But for some reason Hal failed even to remember it. He was going ahead, precisely as if a ton of coal per day was the one thing of consequence in life. "'What shall we do?' he asked. "'We don't want to back out.' But even while he asked the question, Hal was realizing that Mary was right. His was the attitude of the leisure-class person, used to having his own way. But Mary, though she had a temper too, was pointing the lesson of self-control. It was the second time to-night that she had injured his pride. But now he forgave her in his admiration. He had always known that Mary had a mind and could help him. His admiration was increased by what John Edstrom was saying. They must do nothing that would injure the cause of the big union, and so they must resolve to offer no physical resistance, no matter what might be done to them. There was vehement argument on the other side. "'We fight! We fight!' declared old Mike, and cried out suddenly, as if in anticipation of the pain in his injured nose, "'You say me stand that?' "'If you fight back,' said Edstrom, "'we'll all get the worst of it. "'The company will say we started the trouble "'and put us in the wrong. "'We've got to make up our mind "'to rely on moral force.' "'So after more discussion it was agreed. "'Every man would keep his temper, "'that is, if he could. "'So they shook hands all round, "'pledging themselves to stand firm. "'But when the meeting was declared adjourned, and they stole out one by one into the night. They were a very sober and anxious lot of conspirators. End of Section 9 Section 10 Hal slept but little that night. Amid the sounds of the snoring of eight of Reminitsky's other boarders, he lay going over in his mind various things which might happen on the morrow. Some of them were far from pleasant things. He tried to picture himself with a broken nose, or with tar and feathers on him. He recalled his theory as to the handling of burglars. The GFC was a burglar of gigantic and terrible proportions. Surely this was a time to call out, Help yourself! But instead of doing it, Hal thought about Edstrom's aunts, and wondered at the power which made them stay in line. When morning came, he went up into the mountains, where a man may wander and renew his moral force. When the sun had descended behind the mountain tops, he descended also, and met Edstrom and Sicoria in front of the company office. They nodded a greeting, and Edstrom told Hal that his wife had died during the day. There being no undertaker in North Valley, he had arranged for a woman friend to take the body down to Pedro, so that he might be free for the interview with Cartwright. Hal put his hand on the old man's shoulder, but attempted no word of condolence. He saw that Edstrom had faced the trouble and was ready for duty. "'Come ahead,' said the old man, and the three went into the office. While a clerk took their message to the inner office, they stood for a couple of minutes, shifting uneasily from one foot to the other, and turning their caps in their hands in the familiar manner of the lowly. 
At last Mr. Cartwright appeared in the doorway, his small, sparely-built figure eloquent of sharp authority. "'Well, what's this?' he inquired. "'If you please,' said Edstrom, "'we'd like to speak to you. We've decided, sir, that we want to have a check weighman.' "'What?' the word came like the snap of a whip. "'We'd like to have a check weighman, sir.' There was a moment's silence. "'Come in here.' They filed into the inner office, and he shut the door. "'Now, what's this?' Edstrom repeated his words again. "'What put that notion into your heads?' "'Nothing, sir. Only we thought we'd be better satisfied.' "'You think you're not getting your weight?' "'Well, sir, you see, some of the men—' "'We think it would be better if we had the check weighman.' We're willing to pay for him. Who's this check weighman to be? Joe Smith here. Hal braced himself to meet the other's stare. Oh, so it's you. Then, after a moment, so that's why you were feeling so gay. Hal was not feeling in the least gay at the moment, but he forbore to say so. There was a silence. Now why do you fellows want to throw away your money? The superintendent started to argue with them, showing the absurdity of the notion that they could gain anything by such a course. The mine had been running for years on its present system, and there had never been any complaint. The idea that a company as big and as responsible as the GFC would stoop to cheat its workers out of a few tons of coal, and so on, for several minutes. "'Mr. Cartwright,' said Edstrom, when the other had finished, you know I've worked all my life in mines, and most of it in this district. I am telling you something I know when I say there is general dissatisfaction throughout these camps, because the men feel they are not getting their weight. You say there has been no public complaint. You understand the reason for this. What is the reason? Well, said Edstrom gently, maybe you don't know the reason. But anyway, we've decided that we want a check weighman. It was evident that the superintendent had been taken by surprise, and was uncertain how to meet the issue. You can imagine, he said at last, the company doesn't relish hearing that its men believe it's cheating them. We don't say the company knows anything about it, Mr. Cartwright. It's possible that some people may be taking advantage of us without either the company or yourself having anything to do with it. It's for your protection as well as ours that a check weighman is needed. Thank you, said the other dryly. His tone revealed that he was holding himself in by an effort. Very well, he added at last. That's enough about the matter if your minds are made up. I'll give you my decision later. This was a dismissal, and Mike Sicoria turned humbly and started to the door. But Edstrom was one of the ants that did not readily step one side, and Mike took a glance at him and then stepped back into line in a hurry, as if hoping his delinquency had not been noted. "'If you please, Mr. Cartwright,' said Edstrom, "'we'd like your decision, so as to have the check weighman start in the morning.' "'What? You're in such a hurry?' "'There's no reason for delay, sir. We've selected our man, and we're ready to pay him.' 
Who are the men who are ready to pay him? Just you two? I am not at liberty to name the other men, sir. Oh, so it's a secret movement. In a way, yes, sir. Indeed, said the superintendent ominously. And you don't care what the company thinks about it. It's not that, Mr. Cartwright, but we don't see anything for the company to object to. It's a simple business arrangement. Well, if it seems simple to you, it doesn't to me, snapped the other. And then, getting himself in hand, Understand me, the company would not have the least objection to the men making sure of their weights if they really think it's necessary. The company has always been willing to do the right thing. But it's not a matter that can be settled off-hand. I will let you know later." Again they were dismissed, and again old Mike turned, and Edstrom also. But now another aunt sprang into the ditch. "'Just when will you be prepared to let the check weighman begin work, Mr. Cartwright?' asked Hal. The superintendent gave him a sharp look and again it could be seen that he made a strong effort to keep his temper. "'I'm not prepared to say,' he replied. "'I will let you know as soon as convenient to me. That's all now.' And as he spoke he opened the door, putting something into the action that was a command. "'Mr. Cartwright,' said Hal, "'there's no law against our having a check weighman, is there?' The look which these words drew from the superintendent showed that he knew full well what the law was. Hal accepted this look as an answer, and continued, "'I have been selected by a committee of the men to act as their check weighman, and this committee has duly notified the company. That makes me a check weighman, I believe, Mr. Cartwright, and so all I have to do is to assume my duties.' Without waiting for the superintendent's answer, he walked to the door, followed by his somewhat shocked companions. End of section 10 Section 11 At the meeting on the night before, it had been agreed to spread the news of the Czech Weyman movement for the sake of its propaganda value. So now, when the three men came out from the office, there was a crowd waiting to know what had happened. Men clamored questions, and each one who got the story would be surrounded by others eager to hear. Hal made his way to the boarding-house, and when he had finished his supper, he set out from place to place in the camp, telling the men about the check weighman plan, and explaining that it was a legal right they were demanding. All this while old Mike stayed on one side of him, and Edstrom on the other, for Tom Olson had insisted strenuously that Hal should not be left alone for a moment. Evidently the bosses had given the same order for when Hal came out from Reminitsky's, there was Jake Pedrovich, the store-clerk, on the fringe of the crowd, and he followed wherever Hal went, doubtless making note of every one he spoke to. They consulted as to where they were to spend the night. Old Mike was nervous, taking the activities of the spy to mean that they were to be thugged in the darkness. He told horrible stories of that sort of thing. What could be an easier way for the company to settle the matter? They would fix up some story. The world outside would believe they had been killed in a drunken row, perhaps over some woman. 
This last suggestion especially troubled Hal. He thought of the people at home. No, he must not sleep in the village. And on the other hand, he could not go down the canyon, for if he once passed the gate, he might not be allowed to repass it. An idea occurred to him. Why not go up the canyon? There was no stockade at the upper end of the village, nothing but wilderness and rocks, without even a road. "'But where we sleep?' demanded old Mike, aghast. "'Outdoors,' said Hal. "'Pluha biedna, and get the night air into my bones?' "'You think you keep the day air in your bones when you sleep inside?' laughed Hal. "'Why don't I, when I shut them windows tight and cover up my bones?' "'Well, risk the night air once,' said Hal. "'It's better than having somebody let it into you with a knife.' "'But that fellow Pedrovich, he follow us up canyon, too.' "'Yes, but he's only one man, and we don't have to fear him. "'If he went back for others, he'd never be able to find us in the darkness.' Edstrom, whose notions of anatomy were not so crude as Mike's, gave his support to this suggestion. So they got their blankets and stumbled up the canyon in the still, starlit night. For a while they heard the spy behind them, but finally his footsteps died away, and after they had moved on for some distance they believed they were safe till daylight. Hal had slept out many a night as a hunter, but it was a new adventure to sleep out as the game. At dawn they rose and shook the dew from their blankets and wiped it from their eyes. Hal was young and saw the glory of the morning, while poor Mike Sicoria groaned and grumbled over his stiff and aged joints. He thought he had ruined himself forever, but he took courage at Edstrom's mention of coffee, and they hurried down to breakfast at their boarding-house. Now came a critical time, when Hal had to be left by himself. Edstrom was obliged to go down to see to his wife's funeral, and it was obvious that if Mike Sicoria were to lay off work, he would be providing the boss with an excuse for firing him. The law which provided for a check weighman had failed to provide for a check weighman's bodyguard. Hal had announced his program in that flash of defiance in Cartwright's office. As soon as work started up, he went to the tipple. Mr. Peters, he said to the tipple boss, I've come to act as check weighman. The tipple boss was a man with a big black mustache, which made him look like the pictures of Nietzsche. He stared at Hal, frankly dumbfounded. What the devil? said he. Some of the men have chosen me check weighman, explained Hal in a businesslike manner. When their cars come up, I'll see to their weights. You keep off this tipple, young fellow, said Peters. His manner was equally businesslike. So the would-be check weighman came out and sat on the steps to wait. The tipple was a fairly public place, and he judged he was as safe there as anywhere. Some of the men grinned and winked at him as they went about their work. Several found a chance to whisper words of encouragement. And all morning he sat, like a Protestant, at the palace gates of a Mandarin in China. It was tedious work, but he believed that he would be able to stand it longer than the company. End of section 11